morning I want to begin my talk to you by, by reading a <clears throat> rather lengthy uh, portion of scripture. Don't always do this, but the story that I want to look at you uh, together with this morning, uh, I just think we need to see the whole uh, story. So I'm going to I've, have it on the uh, PowerPoint for us to look at, but if you have your Bible or your, uh, <clears throat> smart de- your Bible on your smart device, uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16 today. So Matthew chapter 20, verses uh, 1 through 16. Follow along either in your uh, uh, Bible or smart device or on the screen. Jesus speaking, giving this story. He says, <coughs> excuse me, for the kingdom of heaven <clears throat> is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, which basically was a day's wage, (coughs) for the day, and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Then about five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, a day's wage. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have paid them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let's pray together. And so, Father, as we look at this story that Jesus told, there are probably all kinds of thoughts that come rushing into our heads about the, 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 the fairness, the practicality, all that, uh, what's the lesson behind this story? And so we pray that as we give some further thought to this and try to unpack this, that you will lead us by your Spirit to, to understand the rationale, the thought behind this story, so that we might fully engage as kingdom people and live out what you have stated to us here and shown to us in this story. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are in the middle of Labor Day, the Labor Day long weekend. For most of us, the significance of this weekend is that it gives us the prospect of having a last kick chance at summer. And so, as our numbers would show this morning, many uh, have taken advantage of that and uh, uh, have blown town. But little attention is, is paid to the rationale or the reason for this statutory holiday. And so I did a little checking into the, uh, what this holiday is, is all about, what the intention of it is. 
And the initial intention for this holiday was to give due recognition to the working class as well as to the labor union movement. Apparently, the move to set aside a day to celebrate workers came from the effort of what was called the nine-hour movement to decrease the workday from 12 hours to nine. Resistance to this movement led to protest marches and the unionizing of workers to obtain better working conditions. Politicians seized the opportunity to make political gains by siding with the workers and instituted the Trade Union Act in 1872. The success of the nine-hour movement led to annual celebrations and labor festivals that were eventually instrumental in Parliament declaring Labor Day as an official national holiday in 1894. Labor Day is celebrated in most industrialized nations, but not always on this weekend. In Europe and other parts of the world, it is observed on May 1st. Both Canada and the U.S. celebrate the day on the first weekend of September. Now, the establishing of workers' rights and the creating of a work environment where fairness, equality, respect, and safety are valued is recognized as the acceptable practice in the workplace these days. With this background, it could be that at first glance, the story Jesus told may appear to diminish these values. Jesus sets out to tell of a farmer who hires workers to work in his vineyard. Some clock in at sunrise, some at morning coffee break, some at lunchtime, some at afternoon coffee break, and some an hour before quitting time. Everybody seemed content until pay time rolled around when the stalwarts who had worked 12 hours under a blazing sun learned that the sweatless upstarts who had barely put in an hour's work would receive exactly the same pay. The boss's action contradicted everything known about employee motivation and fair compensation. It was atrocious economics, plain and simple. It was scandalous. What employer in his right mind would pay the same amount for one, works, one hour's work as for 12? Such inequity is the very stuff that leads to the unionization of workers. When it comes to wages, we are looking for a fair and equitable settlement. When we think we have been cheated or are not receiving what we deserve, then disillusionment and irate disgust set in. One of the churches I served as youth pastor built an addition onto the, the main uh, structure. The window of my office allowed me to look out at the construction crew as they worked on the building. Typically, the men would arrive at the building site between 8.30 and 9. The first thing they would do would be to take a coffee break. Then at 10.15, they took another coffee break. At noon, they would stop for lunch. By 11.30, they were again stopping for a coffee break, and by 12.30, they were packing up their tools to end their workday at 3. I couldn't help but compare their workday to mine. My day started at 7.30 a.m. with a Bible study with the students before they left to go off to school and would often go until late in the evening, usually ending up around 10.30 or 11. I would only stop for lunch and supper. I seldom took a day off. Samuel, if you are here today, don't follow this. Um, and, and so as I watched these guys out my window, most of whom were likely making a lot more money than me, and realized that my day was only half over by the time they had reached their quitting time, I couldn't help but find myself getting just a little bit resentful. 
Strictly from a workload and wage settlement, Jesus' story makes no practical sense, which was exactly his intent. For you see, this story is not about the payment of the workers, but the generosity of the owner. In writing about this narrative, Philip Yancey observes that many of us identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers and the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. We risk missing the story's point that God gives out gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would all end up in hell. In the bottom line realm of ungrace, some workers deserve more than others. But in the realm of grace, the word deserved does not even apply. Grace is not about finishing last or first. It is about not counting. We receive grace as a gift from God, not as something we toil to earn, a point that Jesus made clearly through the employer's response to the disenchanted workers. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? The point to be made here is that the kingdom of God is not gained by any amount of effort put forward, but by the extension of of God's grace. The power of this understanding releases within us what I'm calling the grace escape. I once heard of a very successful businessman who thought that he would, he would uh, uh, honor himself by buying a, a, a luxurious yacht. When it came to deciding what to call this new, position, new possession, he had painted in big bold letters across the back of the boat, deserved. He obviously thought that the investment of his time and effort and money meant that he had had this indulgence coming to him. Now, most of us would not be quite as bold in expressing what we think we deserve. But to some extent, we all wrestle with the attitude that we have the good life coming to us. We think we are owed a better deal. The Bible is very clear on what we have coming to us. In a moral economy ruled by an absolutely just and righteous God, when we commit acts of rebellion against His laws, when we lie, cheat, steal, profane His name, and violate His holiness, we deserve death. Stuck in our sin-induced dead living, we have only one thing coming to us, and that is judgment for our acts of disobedience and rebellion against God. That is what we deserve. But then God takes action. With incredible love, he embraces us and draws us in closely to himself. He speaks words of mercy to us and quiets our fearful minds. He then does something that is so remarkable, so outrageous, so beyond our wildest hopes, that when understood fully will bring about such a profound release in us that we will be changed forever. He unleashes his grace. He grants to us blessings we do not deserve and kindnesses that we could never earn. 
He simply amazes us with the extent of his compassion and acts with such unreserved acceptance that we cannot help but be delighted by his good favor. When you know what you deserve, yet you receive something more wonderful than you could ever think possible, the grace escape happens and you never can be the same. This is revealed in the Apostle Paul's declaration. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Here Paul tells us that God responds to us not because we deserve his favor, but simply because of the kind of God he is. God loves us. God is merciful towards us. God is full of grace. The style with which the apostle writes leads to a cascading of emotion when he thinks about God's care for and commitment to us through Jesus Christ. Love, mercy, grace are stacked together in an attempt to explain God's undeserved favor that just keeps piling up for our benefit until it leads to what I'm calling a grace explosion. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus reveals the explosive power of grace. The wayward son took the part of his father's inheritance that he concluded had coming to him and wasted it in raucous, reckless, unrestrained living. He did everything that a young man with pockets full of money and life without borders would do. He bagged his father's values, thumbed his nose at God, and tore into pleasure, pleasure-filled life living with a vengeance. Some of you may have a pretty good idea of what he did. But when his high-rolling, loose living and foolish choices led to the squandering of his wealth, and he sunk so low that he began to look with longing eyes at the slop he fed to the pigs on a farm where he had managed to find some shelter, he thought to himself, this is justice. I'm dying in a pig pen, but I deserve this. I've wasted my father's inheritance, money that he gained through decades of hard, honest work. I violated everything that I was taught. I turned my back on God and his ways. I abandoned all sense, and now I am crawling around with the pigs. I have pretty well trashed my life, but I have no one to blame but myself. If I die here a penniless vagrant, it is what I deserve. I got justice. But then he had a thought. In spite of the fact that he was standing knee-deep in pig's filth, he dared to imagine grace. Not because he was worthy of it, but because he remembered his father's love. He couldn't get the possibility out of his head that his dad just might be gracious to him, and so he devised a plan. He would make his way back home, and when he saw his father, the first thing that he would do would be to go up to him and say, Dad, I have really messed up. I have disgraced your name and sinned against God. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. But I'm wondering if you could find it in you to take me in as a hired hand and let me sleep in the bunkhouse with the rest of the hired help. Never, never in his wildest dreams could he have anticipated his father's response to his return. This delinquent son got the surprise of his life his father saw him coming and ran to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him. He would, have not, he would have nothing to do with his son's prepared speech. He called for a ring to be put on his finger and the latest designer clothes to be brought out for him. 
He threw a huge party with family and friends. His response was totally irrational. It was completely out of line with what the son should have received. And it blew away, every, blew away, everyone, blew away everyone else as well. Excuse me. Especially the son who was forever changed by the stunning display of grace. Do you now get some understanding of the explosive nature of grace? It transforms us because it's so undeserved. It moves us to greater heights of living because it exposes the futility of the moral self-improvement game. It blows away our pasts and liberates us from debilitating the debilitating guilt of our sins. It gifts us with God's riches. As A.W. Tozer has written, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Young Bible college students and seminarians that I would interview for licensing to ministry in my role as district superintendent a few years ago would, would often recite for me the definition of grace that's based on an acronym of the word and tell me that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And I suppose that it is adequate and a clever way of remembering a definition of the word. But I'm not so sure that grace can be so neatly packaged. I prefer to think of grace in this way. Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of pride or prejudice or promiscuity or pornography or pretense. And grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of church attendance, Bible reading, prayer, giving, or caring for the poor. I like what Philip Yancey states, Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. God wants you to be stunned by His grace. He wants to cause a grace explosion in your life. He wants to overwhelm you with a gift that you do not deserve. He wants you to understand how the power of His grace can bring life transformation to you. He wants you to gain release from your sin. Let me put it this way. God intends that a grace escape along with a grace explosion would lead to a grace experience. You see, when the Bible speaks about God extending grace to us, it doesn't mean that He just simply overlooks our breaking of His laws for the sake of convenience. Grace does not dismiss the need for justice. God could not be gracious if he were not just. Grace is in God's vocabulary because the cross was in God's plan. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the legal and moral demand that lawlessness be punished. Jesus gave his life in payment for the sins that we commit so that we can go free. In the movie, The Last Emperor, the young boy anointed or anointed as the last emperor of China lives a magical life of luxury with a thousand servants at his command. What happens when you do something wrong, his brother asks. When I do wrong, someone else is punished, the boy replies. To demonstrate, he breaks a jar and one of the servants is beaten. In God's kingdom, Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants did wrong, the king was punished. Grace is free 
only because the giver himself has borne the cost. I want to make this point because I find that unless I understand this background to God's provision of grace, it is easy for me to take advantage of his graciousness. Simply being left off the, let off the hook for my law-breaking does me no good. It will not produce life-change behavior. And so it is with God's grace. Unless I fully understand and appreciate what my transgression of his laws has put him through, the likelihood that I will view grace as a license to speed recklessly through life, ignoring God's ways, is ever-present. Grace is not to, be review, not to be viewed as an invitation to take chances with God. And so the Apostle Paul declared, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When grace is fully experienced, the desire to sin is diminished. Our capacity to sin is not entirely removed, but grace, when experienced, leads to a powerful deterrent to temptation and sin. And so the scriptures state, it teaches us, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. We see our relationship with God for what it really is, a gift beyond measure, given at great cost to God, and it shapes our behavior. For this reason, the Apostle Peter tells us to grow in grace. We are to draw more and more upon grace to live by until everything we are and do is grace-assisted. Dallas Willard writes, The transformation of the inner being is as much or more a gift of grace as is our justification before God. Of course, neither one is wholly passive. But with reference to both justification and transformation, boasting is excluded by the law of grace through faith. In fact, we consume the most grace by leading a holy life, not by continuing to sin and being repeatedly forgiven. The interpretation of grace as having only to do with guilt is utterly false to biblical teaching and renders spiritual life in Christ unintelligible. He then goes on to further observe, The greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume the most grace, who indeed are most in need of grace, those who are saturated by grace in every dimension of their being. Grace to them is like breath. The power of God's grace can radically transform our lives and silence our fears. That's what makes grace so amazing and the God who extends it to us so beyond description. When the reality of grace received and believed takes hold in our lives, we live free in God's love. Philip Yancey concludes his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, with this account. 
Bill Moyer's documentary, uh, documentary, documentary film, rather, on the hymn Amazing Grace includes a scene filmed in Wembley Stadium in London. Various musical groups, mostly rock bands, had gathered together in celebration of the changes in South Africa, and for some reason the promoters scheduled an opera singer, Jesse Norman, as the closing act. The film cuts back and forth between scenes of the unruly crowd in the stadium and Jesse Norman being interviewed. For 12 hours, groups like Guns N' Roses have blasted the crowd through banks of speakers, riling up fans already high on booze and drugs. The crowd yells for more curtain calls, and the rock groups oblige. Meanwhile, Jesse Norman sits in her dressing room discussing Amazing Grace with Moyers. The hymn was written, of course, by John Newton, a coarse, cruel slave trader. He first called out to God in the midst of a storm that nearly threw him overboard. Newton came to see the light only gradually, however, continuing to ply his trade even after his conversion. He wrote the song, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, while waiting in an African harbor for a shipment of slaves. Later, though, he renounced his profession, became a minister, and joined William Wilberforce in the fight against slavery. John Newton never lost sight of the depths from which he had been lifted. He never lost sight of grace. When he wrote, That Saved a Wretch Like Me, he meant those words with all of his heart. In the film, Jesse Norman tells Bill Moyer that Newton may have borrowed an old tune sung by the slaves themselves when he crafted Amazing Grace, hence redeeming the song just as much as he had been redeemed. Finally, the time comes for her to sing. A single circle of light follows Norman, a majestic African-American woman wearing a flowing African dashiki as she strolls on stage. No backup band, no musical instruments, just Jessie. The crowd stirs, restless. Few recognize the opera singer. A voice for more Guns N' Roses comes out from the crowd. Others take up the cry. The scene's getting a little ugly. Alone, a cappella, Jesse Norman begins to sing very slowly, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And a remarkable thing happens in Wembley Stadium that night. Several thousand raucous fans fall silent before the area of grace. By the time Norman reaches the second verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." The soprano has the crowd in her hands. By the time she reaches the third verse, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Several thousand fans are singing along, digging back in nearly lost memories for words they heard long ago. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Jesse Norman later confessed she had no idea what power descended on Wembley Stadium that night. Yancey offers this explanation. When grace descends, the world falls silent before it. Silence in the face of being the recipient of what is undeserved does not always sit well with us. We have labor days to prove the worth of our being. We march and protest and scramble to ensure that we receive the wages we think we deserve. 
We feel much more at home in a world of ungrace. And so people stumble over the gracious generosity of God. They are prepared to accept a God who strikes hard bargains, who makes us sweat and squirm under oppressive laws, but they are not prepared for a God who gives as much for an hour's wage as for a day's. They are not ready to accept that grace is an outrageous blessing freely given to totally undeserving recipients. It is only as we stop our protesting and accept God's unrelenting invitation that we can escape from building blisters on the treadmill of good works. When we come to understand God's grace and see ourselves as being undeserving recipients of it, then an amazing thing happens. The Apostle Paul describes it this way. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next, to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. At the root of God's gospel is his unfailing heart of love and his eagerness to shower us with his best blessings. The God who amazes us with his grace wants to enter your life, to take you into his loving care and bring stillness to your anxious soul. He wants to release you from your obsession that getting a fair deal out of life and gift you with the generosity of his kindness. He is eager to provide you with the wages of grace, the provision of abundance you do not deserve. His invitation stands regardless of the hour in which you may find yourself. He is searching you out to offer you the gift of life in his kingdom where mercy and undeserved favor abound. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we have made our way through this story, this disturbing story in some ways, to some perhaps, it is a reminder to us of your gracious generosity extended toward us. Some of us here may feel that life for us has been really pretty good, and so we just kind of keep motoring on without understanding the depth of your love and mercy and grace that you want to extend to us. And so, Holy God, help us to understand the depth of your love and of your mercy and of your grace. Help us to realize that grace extends beyond asking for forgiveness of our sin. It carries forward into our very existence so that we might live holy lives. So help us to be inhalers of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Apostle Paul uh, writes this blessing, this benediction. He says, uh, And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I've often wrestled a little bit with that. It seemed to me that he should say, And let the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But it occurs to me, I don't know what was in Paul's head or the mind of the Holy Spirit when he directed him to say that, but it occurs to me, that he put grace first maybe because that's what we really wrestle the most with. 
just to understand the depth of grace that is extended to us, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. And so I trust that as I say this word of blessing over you today, that somehow that word grace will just kind of come with neon lights in your mind and in your heart. And you will go with a fresh understanding of what it means to live free in the grace of God. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.